0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Gage. I do um, firmly believe that our sons will be best friends. I don't think uh, there's another duo with cooler names than them, Griffin and Maverick. So (laughs) thankful to both of our wives, I think, for coming up with those names. Uh, Y'all, I I love getting to be here. Like Gage said, I get to be our youth pastor, so I get to hang out with 6th through 12th graders at things like Wake, which we had this week, which was (laughs) awesome if you are involved with it. It was super fun, and we have... Youth Weekend and all these things coming up, so make sure you're leaning into that. If you're a student, if you haven't come to something before, we'd love to meet you. If you're a student and you're watching online somewhere not in Auburn, we'd love to connect with you as well. You can DM us, Instagram, check out the website, a ton of ways to connect. We would love to serve you. But I am so excited when I get opportunities to do this, not because, oh, it's, More important because it's a big stage. That's not true. Every time somebody gets on stage, whether it's at a youth event or one of our uh, men's or women's gatherings or this Sunday, we firmly believe whoever it is up here is stepping into the moment that we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to speak through us. And so, yes, I've prepared and I've studied and I'm called to be in this spot. Um, But I just want to invite you, lean in. Like, if you're like me, truthfully, I sit here every Sunday. I love listening. Like, I love learning from these situations, I love sitting in the crowd but i'm a, i'm a little antsy i get a little antsy and i'm like okay how long this is going to take i got to kind of try to focus in a little bit a little adhd and so the way that i've found and i just want to encourage y'all to do this this whole time be asking the holy spirit okay i'm hearing what he's saying would you make that impact my life? As soon as it becomes practical in your life and you start, okay, how could that connect? What situation could that be talking about at me? I just find that I get to lean in a little bit more. And so as Gage was saying, I think we have one of, if not the best uh, kids ministries ever. I'm so excited that we get to uh, watch our sons grow up together here. It's quite a party. Um, I love that we have such an awesome community here. Um, Super thankful for just everybody that's involved with that. But Y'all, parenting is weird. If you're a parent in the room or going to be a parent soon, let me just tell you that it's weird. I was more emotional at his one-year birthday than I was when he was born. I don't know if that was more real or he was, you know, showing some emotion. I don't know what it was, but I was a little more emotional. And so I I just, I get excited and I truly am honored to be the youth pastor here because I love getting to watch young lives be formed into the image of Christ. I love the decisions they get to make and all these different things, seeing how their life matters. That's what we talked about this past Wednesday at Wake of how the, Jesus is the best option. There's no option that is that can really be called life. And when you follow Jesus, everything is on the table. It doesn't matter what it is in your life. And so um, it's been fun to see just our kids ministry, our youth ministries develop. And as I'm slowly starting to walk into potentially thinking about maybe starting to parent because he's becoming a toddler and I'm seeing the beginnings of temper tantrums, it's been quite an adventure. We're, uh, if you're a sign language expert, just go with me here. We don't know quite if this is right, but we're trying to teach Maverick a, few, a little sign language. And so we've got him all done. Our all done is jazz hands, double jazz hands. I think that's right. I'm not positive, but he's starting to pick it up. We want him to know it and to do it in the context of he's eating and he's done eating, so all done. All done. Um, but he clearly is smart because he understands the concept really well. In that he thinks whatever's happening at the moment will finish if he does all done. So he understands the idea of all done really well. But if you didn't know this, for a one-year-old laying on their back and getting their diaper changed is the equivalent to waterboarding. It's psychological torture. It's just the worst thing ever. And so as soon as recently we started laying him down, and as soon as he starts laying down, he's screaming, doing jazz hands <laughs> the whole time. All done, all done. And so I'm like, okay, well at least you're smart, but. As I said, the cool thing about our kids' ministry is their little tagline is raising tiny disciples, and that fires me up because I want Maverick, I want Griffin, I want all our kids to be tiny disciples, because we've been in this series, Make Disciples. And honestly, Miles made this comment a couple weeks ago. This series has seemed to just be a continuation of a lot of series we've been in this year. We've done The Way, and we've done Remnant. Just every series seems to be talking about formation and us growing. And so this series, we've been talking through the Great Commission, this command of Jesus to go and make disciples, and we've been saying that... To make a disciple, we have to become disciples, and the best way to become a disciple is to be making disciples, and so we've talked about what that looks to the nations, and in our own lives, and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and then in the middle of that, we got to celebrate baptism and hear stories of people becoming a disciple. You can listen to the stories and hear the impacts of people all throughout it, so that's been a really cool place that we've been, but as I've been thinking and praying about this message, I was like, okay as we become disciples, there's so many ways that we have and we can define what it is to be a disciple. But I really wanted to think about it in context. If you didn't know this principle, um, when you go to the scriptures, when you go to the Bible, you really want to know the context. It it helps bring the word alive. Not Not that there's hidden meanings or anything secret, but it just helps bring the word alive. And so I was like, okay, in Jesus's day, in his culture, what was going on at the time, what did it mean to be a disciple? I started asking that question, studying it a little bit, and here's what I found. So in Second Temple Judaism, if you've never heard that term, that just describes the the Judaism, the way they practiced being Jewish at the time. It was the Second Temple. The first one got destroyed. They rebuilt a new one. So that's just the period that Jesus is in. He's in Second Temple Judaism. In the time, they placed a really high value on education and knowing the scripture, knowing the text, knowing Torah and the first five books and the prophets and all of these things. And so they had pretty intense education system. Their K through three education system was focused around memorizing the first five books, Torah. Like you had to know it. That was their K through three. So their third graders could probably run circles around most of us in knowing the scriptures. So that, that should be convicting. But they only graduated like we think one, two, a very low number of people graduated third grade. So it's kind of like, oh, that's a bummer. But remember, they their third graders still knew the text better than we do probably. But then the people who would graduate, that would go to a, another three years where they'd start memorizing the prophets and wisdom, and then there was one more section. And when I say memorize, I'm talking like if I was a teacher and started saying a phrase out of Leviticus and stopped mid-sentence, you and I pointed to you, you'd be able to just pick it up right there and keep going. Like they knew it inside and out. And so only a few people graduated each step along the way they had those three phases and then at the end of that they had the opportunity if they were going to continue to go to a rabbi of which there were only few like these were really well known esteemed like these were the guys who knew what they were talking about teachers of the law like they were up there they would go to one of them and say like i want to be your disciple And have a conversation, almost like an interview, like a back and forth discussion, just like, hey, do you know what's going on, all of this kind of stuff. And so it's pretty intense. So to become a disciple, you had to like know your stuff, be the best of the best, all of this stuff. And this is the context in which that Jesus calls disciples. So that's a huge step up for, for Peter and John and James, who are fishermen, like they clearly didn't, they got cut out somewhere in that education system. They didn't pass at some point. They get called to be a disciple, so that's a big deal. And then he tells them, go and make disciples. And so I just wanna put this definition. Here's what, in his context, another way to define what a goal of a disciple is, which I think is important for us, and it's gonna kind of set the stage for today. So it's gonna be on the screen behind me. This is from a guy named Marty Solomon. He does Bema Discipleship Podcast. It's just a really cool resource, just um, adds to, to some Jewish context of the, of the scriptures that just helps uh, us learn a little bit. Um, so here's, a, here's, here's the goal of being a disciple in this period. To know what the rabbi knows in order to do what the rabbi does for the reasons the rabbi does them, really important parentheses there, in order to be just like the rabbi in his walk with God. I'm gonna read it again. To know what the rabbi knows in order to do what the rabbi does for the reasons the rabbi does them in order to be just like the rabbi in his walk with God. And so we'll flesh this out, but when we're talking about being a disciple, think about that to be just like the rabbi, to do what the rabbi does for the reasons to the rabbi does them. That's like a whole nother level of knowing. Like you can mimic somebody and copy them, but to get to the point where you understand them so well and their reasoning, where you can then apply that in other situations where you're doing the same thing and you know why you're doing that. Like that's a deep level of knowledge that we're talking about. And so just to be clear, when we're talking about being a disciple, yes, we go and make disciples, but the rabbi is Jesus. We walk in his way, in his methods. Like That's what the whole The Way series was about earlier this year. But as we continue this, we just need to be looking, what is it to be a disciple? And so that's what I want to talk about today. Really simply, that last phrase, in order to be just like the rabbi in his walk with God, that's the ultimate goal of a disciple right there. So then that's our ultimate goal for being disciples and making disciples. To be just like Jesus in his walk with God. That is the goal of my life. That is the goal of your life. And I can kind of feel maybe the... We'll just say this because this was me at one point. Uh, theologically inclined college students squirming in their seat a little bit because they're like, whoa, 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 hold on. I thought our goal was the glory of God. What about that? What about the glory of God? Yes, from a big picture perspective, that's the headline of the of human history, of all history. Jesus wins. From a big picture, God-sized story perspective, the goal of my life and your life is to glorify God. That's not selfish of God that he made us that way. Who else is he gonna glorify? He's God, he wouldn't be God otherwise. So yes, big picture, we're talking glory of God. You are to live your life that God would be glorified. But through that, if I look micro at your life, at my life, at your day to day, the goal of your life is to become more like Jesus every single day. That is the goal of your life. Like we should see that change within us, that progress happening. And so this is, this is a big theological term called sanctification. If you grew up in church, you probably heard it, heard different definitions. I'm gonna give a definition part of the way through this, but that's what we're talking about. This idea of being transformed, being sanctified, being set apart, being made holy. Those are all ways you can talk about sanctification. Sanctification. That is the goal of my life and your life. So as we're in this series, Make Disciples, I just wanted to make it really clear. This is how we do this on a day-to-day basis in my life and in your life. This has to be part of the process. And so if you're like me, sanctification, I don't wanna keep saying it 100 times. So I'm not gonna title this sermon, Sanctification. We're gonna call it Ever Brighter. So title this sermon, if you wanna write that down in your notes, Make Disciples Ever Brighter. And I'm gonna explain that. I'm I'm a big visual learner. Like metaphors. So this metaphor of light, all of that kind of stuff really fires me up. And so I'm going to read um, a verse. Y'all don't have to flip there. Go ahead and get your Bibles out though, because we are going to go to another scripture in just a second that we're going to read together. But when I was in college and trying to process, how do I move past my faith with Jesus being built on emotional highs and emotional lows? How do I move past that? Those things are not bad. I'm still really thankful for those things when they happen even now in my life. But as we mature, Our faith and our walk with Jesus cannot be grown just by those moments. There has to be some depth. And so as I was processing that, I was reading through Proverbs. Proverbs is an interesting book. It's these wisdom concepts, these principles. There's literally principles in Proverbs that say the exact opposite, and wisdom is learning to apply that because both are true in a lot of situations. And so I was reading this verse that I'm about to read, and I was just hit by the Holy Spirit from that phrase, Ever Brighter. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. Proverbs 4.18 The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Ever brighter. And so when I read that for the first time, I just was hit in my, like the Holy Spirit just like hit me and ever brighter for some reason, not with like, this is what it means or like was saying things, but just I noticed it, I recognized it. Do you know the Holy Spirit can speak through you recognizing things? Like you noticing little simple things, especially when reading scripture, a lot of time that's the Holy Spirit being like, hey, pay attention to this. So there's correct interpretation of this verse in which I'll talk about in a second, but that phrase really stuck out to me as I started thinking, okay, I am called righteous because of what Jesus has done for me. So when we talk about the righteous, the holy ones, the saints in the New Testament, that's talking about you and me if we're in Christ. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our brokenness. He sees Jesus's perfection. Like we are saints in a general sense. We are the righteous because Christ has made us righteous. And so, okay, the path of the righteous, my path When we talk about path, right? Like my life, the things that I do, how I look, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter to the full light of day. So every day then, just like the sun coming up, it starts really dim and then it gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And so when we're talking about sanctification, when we're talking about what's happening in my life and your life, this is a visual for what I'm talking about. This is what it should look like. You should be shining Brighter and brighter. Go ahead and flip to 2 Corinthians three. That's where we're going to be living. We're going to look at this concept in the New Testament because we see this. We see this. This isn't just from Proverbs four eighteen. That's where the phrase came from. But this idea is all all throughout the New Testament. Jesus claims, "I am the light of the world," and then says, "You are the light of the world." Like a city on a hill, like a light doesn't get put under a bowl so it's hidden. It shines so that other people may see it. This is the metaphor that we're talking about. This is what we're looking at. So, 2 Corinthians. 3, 7 to 18, as you're looking, just hold, hold your Bibles up, open where they were. I need a quick, quick Bible drill, not, not for single people, but for a much more important topic. If you celebrate Christmas in any way, shape, or form, music, movies, decorations, anything, before Thanksgiving, anytime before Thanksgiving, keep your Bibles in the air. All right, I would say that's a slightly more majority than the morning, so I like this one better. Go ahead and flip to 2 Corinthians 3 for me. Um, it's a, clearly a hot topic in culture, but also here on the staff, we're slightly divided. Um, Miles likes to make sweeping statements, and so made this whole thing about it needs to have, its, there's a time and a place for everything and tried to make it spiritual. But if, if of the four, four pastors on staff, myself, Gage, Miles, and Matt. Two of us start listening to Christmas music November 1st, me and Matt. And if you had to guess which pastor put their tree up first, it was Miles. So do with that what you will as he's up here saying, don't celebrate before. He tries to make all excuses about being busy. I think secretly the joy of the Lord is a little um, pervasive, shall we say. Listen, I don't need to celebrate. I don't need to celebrate Thanksgiving for a month. I don't need to have turkeys and cornucopias out. Christmas is more fun and matters more. I should be thankful every day. Why not extend the celebration of Jesus coming for two months? I'm just like, hey, and here's the deal. I am, not, I am not judging you if you don't wanna do that. There's no judgment from here. Everybody attacks like me, the early people. They're like, it's wrong. It's gotta be after Thanksgiving. You do it how you wanna do it. I'm just having more fun. So <laughs> that's, that's my spiel on Christmas. We can wait until Christmas. To do the Christmas series, we don't want to make anybody stumble and not come here just because they disagree with celebrating Jesus' birth. Um, <laughs> y'all, it's fun. Church is fun. This is awesome. We can sanctify all the Christmas things that used to be not, not Christian. So, um, all right, 2 Corinthians 3 7 to 18. I'm going to read it all the way through. All the way through. Letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Corinth was crazy. So this is the second time he's writing a letter to them and trying to get them back in line. So this is kind of the foundation of of a lot of his message in this letter. So let's pick it up. Verse seven. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull for to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to, the, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." So you can see from those last couple verses where we're going in that this light is shining, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. But we need to understand the things that he's talking about before. That's why we read this whole passage just to get the context. And so honestly, if you have the the ESV, they kind of mix up words, but even then, even in the NIV, which I think is a little simpler in how they translate it, Paul is using like 18 different words in the same way, but he's like reworking it in in every sentence. So let's work through this together. So seven through 11, Paul is making this dynamic, this, this comparison between two ministries is the term he uses, the ministry of the law and the ministry of the spirit. Now, he says right there at the top, now if the ministry that brought death engraved in letters on stone, think the tablets with the 10 commandments. And if you're reading that and you haven't heard this before, ministry that brought death seems kind of confusing. What Paul's getting at there, and he he handles this much deeper in other spots, in Romans and a couple places where he talks about what the law did. It was valuable for the time that it was, but it also revealed that the wages of sin are death. So you see what I'm saying? The law's not bad. It just showed us that the brokenness in us led to death. So the ministry that revealed, that brought about our awareness of death in a sense, our awareness of sin, that's what the law was doing. Paul talks about it as, as transitional. That's why he uses the word transitory. He's... He's getting at this thing. He talks about the law as like a guardian in other parts of scripture. This thing that was a a placeholder and watching over God's people until the next thing came, that being Jesus bringing in the ministry of the spirit. So that's the dynamic that he's getting at. And so he says in verse seven, so that the Israelites couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was. So he's talking about this first ministry. What's the deal with not being able to look at Moses? So in Exodus 34 Moses has already broken the first tablets because the Israelites messed up when he was getting the first tablets. Gone back up to God. God's like, I'm gonna wipe these people off, start over with you. And he's like, no, God, you are gracious and compassionate. And so they have this whole conversation. God's like, okay, my presence will go with y'all. And Moses asks God, bold, bold ask, says, let me see your glory. And God's like, you can't see my face because nobody can see my face and live, but you can see my back. And so in this crazy picture, Mount Sinai, Moses is receiving the law, the 10 commandments and the subsequent law on that from the glory of the Lord on this mountain. There's all this crazy imagery. And he sees, in essence, it says he sees God's back. And so he, he comes face to face with the glory of the Lord, comes down from the mountain and gives the Israelites the law. And, and we see this keep going. It, it infers that this keeps happening every time Moses goes into the tabernacle to be with God and then he comes out. What happens is his face literally shines so brightly the Israelites can't stand it. They can't look at him because of him being in God's presence. So he literally put a veil over his face because it's, uh, how I picture this is literally his face was shining so brightly like the sun that that people couldn't like look at him and focus on what he was saying so this is this is the ministry that that passed, the ministry that brought death and condemnation that was passing because he could only be in God's presence part of the time, like Moses was in God's presence, and then God's presence would leave and Paul does this comparison with the ministry of the Spirit because he says, in, in verse eight, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious if the ministry that brought condemnation, which was, again, the law was glorious. The glory of the Lord came and Moses' face shined and the glory of God left. How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. What he's getting at is this ministry of the spirit, kind of like Miles talked about the week before baptism. This ministry of the spirit is an ongoing presence of the glory of the Lord in you and me. The glory and the presence of God doesn't leave us. It left. Like we're like, we look at that and we're like, whoa, crazy physical stuff, like God's there. It literally points to, and it talks about in other places in Hebrews, people waited and longed for the ministry in which we live, which is the ministry of the spirit. The law showed us our brokenness. The spirit is coming to heal our brokenness. That's why this is the ministry that brings righteousness. So Paul is contrasting these two saying, how much greater is it that we live where we live in the time period that we do because we have the literal presence of God indwelling within us, working on us the whole time. We don't have to come with, with any veil or distinction or brokenness between us and the spirit because the spirit lives in us. And this ministry is working righteousness in us, not revealing the condemnation. And so we keep going. In 12, he kind of shifts in comparing us with Moses in this context. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. There is no separation between you and God. Whoever speaks from this stage does not have more access to God than you do. None. One of my favorite details in the entire Bible is when Jesus was crucified, earthquake, people came back from the dead right then. That's kind of crazy. It got dark. And what does it say? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So so then the only people who could experience the presence of God one day a year was going into the Holy of Holies and it was the high priest. That's the only person who could experience the presence of God. God, remember, it had to be God that was doing it because he tore it from top to bottom, and this was like a 30-foot tall, thick curtain, was torn in two when Jesus died. Why? Because the veil, the separation between us and God has been torn away. You have the same access that I do. We literally get to go to his throne room with boldness. That's why we're different than Moses. Moses was only in God's presence, and then he would leave it. He would come back, and then he would leave it. The presence, the shining of his face happened and then faded We are consistently in his presence. We are always in his presence. We are walking with him. It doesn't feel that way and we don't live like that, but that's what we're talking about right now. Sanctification, I'm gonna give a different definition than this, this just happened right now. But another definition of sanctification could be trying to stay in God's presence and reminding yourself of that more consistently. Because the truth is you're always in God's presence, but we don't live like that a lot of the time. So the more that we're being sanctified, the more that we're walking like Jesus did, the more that we're like Jesus in his walk with God, he knew he was in God's presence all the time. Yes, he was God, but he also knew he was in his father's presence and the Holy Spirit was with him the whole time. And the more that we know that, the more that we're being sanctified. So let's keep going. What does he say after that? Their minds, this is verse 14, their minds were made dull for to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ is taken away. Even to this day when Moses read, a veil covers their hearts. So now we're talking about the spiritual separation. He's talking about people who don't know Jesus. He was talking specifically about the Israelites then. They kind of missed that Jesus was this culmination of what had happened. But in Jesus, the veil is taken away. This separation, this this lack of understanding, this lack of awareness is taken away by Jesus because it's Jesus that saves you and me. And so then he keeps going, now the Lord is the spirit, skip 16. He says, but whenever anyone's turned to the Lord, the veil's taken away. 17, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we're gonna live on 17 for just a second. But first, let me give you the definition of sanctification. A lot of ways to define sanctification, but with this terminology, here's how I've defined sanctification for us today. The process of the Holy Spirit, the process of the Holy Spirit using the will and life circumstances of a believer to transform them into the image of Christ, to transform them into the image of Christ. And so this is a weird part, right? You can't save yourself. In Christ, this veil is taken away. He has purchased for you access to God. But this is the weird part. When we talk about salvation, it's a three-part process. Justification, that's where when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfection. Now, that happens in a moment. That happens when you're saved. That seals you forever. Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The process that we're in now is this already, but not yet. He sees us as perfect, but we're not perfect yet. We live in broken bodies. We can die. We can get hurt. We make mistakes. We're rude to people. There is sin like a cancer eating away at us. So we have not been glorified. That's the third part where we won't have any sickness or brokenness or pain, or we won't do anything that's wrong. But right now we're in this in-between, and this is what we call sanctification. This is a process that the Holy Spirit works in you, but your will works in tandem with the Holy Spirit. There's another verse that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what it's getting at. You've been saved, you can't do anything to save yourself on the front end. Jesus has done that. But now you, being a person with free will, activate and work with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit doing it in you, but our will has to participate in that. If we just sat here and we're like, you got it, The Holy Spirit works with things that we do, and so that's why we gather together, that's why we worship, that's why we're gonna do the things that I'm gonna suggest in this message, but our will has to come to it. And then that other part, life circumstances, every single thing in your life is being used by the Holy Spirit to sanctify you. The family that you're in, the good parts and the bad parts, maybe the dysfunctional parts that you're gonna hang out with this week, the job that you're in, the way that you were raised, where you're from, the fact that you live in Auburn, Alabama right now or wherever you live if you're not from here, Every single thing, your parents, your kids, your siblings, your job, the places you go to to hang out, the pain and the good, every single thing in your life is being used by the Holy Spirit. So part of this process that we're gonna talk about is we have to recognize that everything in our life matters. And then that last part, being transformed into the image of Christ. Jesus said that, it is said of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. He said, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you see the Father. In that same way, we are being transformed into his image so that if people see me, they see Jesus. That's like a high calling. That's not something that you can do by yourself. But again, we are in a better ministry now because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you to participate in that process with you, to do that through you. And so we need to shine ever brighter. That's where that phrase is is gonna live. And so here's the thing that's gonna set up these these, uh, points well, in my opinion. We have to realize that we are still enslaved to something every single one of us. You might not be addicted to something. You might not have some of the more obvious or provocative things that we talk about struggling with, anxiety, pornography, depression. It's good that we point those things out because those are hard struggles. But you might not have one of those things, but I promise you, you are enslaved to things in your life. Because here's the truth about freedom. Freedom is not being able to do whatever you want. Because secretly, if you could do whatever you want, you're enslaved to what your flesh wants. It enslaves you to just being comfortable or being safe or looking good or having significance, whatever it is that enslaves you. And it's sneaky in the culture that we live in, super sneaky. We live in the United States in 2021. I can almost guarantee that every single one of us is enslaved to comfort in some way, shape or form. So that could mean a variety of different things in you. That could be, you know, I have to play golf on Friday mornings. For me, a lot of the times it's, I've, I got to just decompress. I got to watch Netflix, like two or three episodes every night. Whatever it is, there's, it's the sneaky things that separate us and are the biggest barrier to the sanctification because those are the things that are enslaving us. So in verse 17, what does it say? Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That is a process where you are being freed from what enslaves you. You are being freed from these things that, that are sneaky and honestly make your life just kind of look like everybody else is around us. Our lives are to be different. That doesn't mean easy, that doesn't mean painless, but we are to look different in the way that we live. And so this process matters because if God is not the God of your, your mundane moments, Monday morning and Tuesday afternoon and Thursday night, he's not the God of your life. Like this is such a significant part of the life of a believer. This is part of the salvation process. Like this is what we talk about. We talk about salvation all of the time. But we overfocus on the middle part, don't really focus on the second part and then forget about the third part. Excuse me, we overfocus on the first part. That happens in a moment. The salvation we're processing with right now is sanctification. So if if God is only the God of those high emotional moments when we gather together on Sundays, maybe even also your community group, there's all of this other time in the week where he's not the God of your life. You see what I'm saying? Like there's things in that that are enslaving you, even though it doesn't feel like slavery because you're getting what you want or you're comfortable. It might be your kids. It might be your job. I don't know what it is for you. I can't project into every single person what it is, but I'm confident that the Holy Spirit might illuminate things in you of what is that slavery that it's working with. But this is why sanctification matters. It is the freeing of us from the slavery of sin, from the slavery of our flesh, and this is why it matters. So it's a visible change that begins to happen. It matters, let's read verse 18, kind of where you can see I got some of this language from. We all with unveiled faces, remember, there's no barrier between us and God. Unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You might see on contemplate in your, uh, in your Bible, there might be a footnote there. Mine says, or reflect. I want to focus on that for a second because that's where both of these points are going to come from. So if this is a visible process that's going to be happening in you and me, here are two, the two things that I think we collectively and you individually and I individually need to do so that we start to see this process in us. And they both come from this word, this contemplate word. It's, it's meaning, like it's depth of meaning gets not fully lost, but partially lost. People really struggle with how to translate that because we don't have a perfect word for it in English from the Greek. It's a fun word, katoptriso. It sounds really interesting. It's this idea of a mirror. Like You have to understand the concept of a mirror when you're thinking about this verb in that if I look into a mirror, I can behold, I can contemplate something. It's not contemplate like meditate. It's like Behold, like ponder, think about, look on something that I see in the mirror. So, in one sense, Jesus is the mirror showing me the glory of God. This person who came to earth fully God and fully man, showing me who God is, showing me the glory of God. And I look into that. I look to Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. So, that's that first idea of contemplate. But then there's also another idea, and this is why they, some people translate it reflect, where we're kind of the mirror. We reflect the glory of God, because remember, if people see us, they need to see Jesus. We are becoming like our rabbi, Jesus. And so those are the two points, that's it. Contemplate the glory of God, number one. We need to look to him and behold him. And two, reflect the image of Christ. People need to see Christ through us. So let's go into, in point number one right here. Behold, like there's this idea that you become what you're looking at. You become what you behold. If we're looking to Christ, we should start looking like him. So we should know him well enough to do the things that he would do for the reasons he would do them. You see what I'm saying? Like we can't, we can't perfectly copy Jesus because we don't live in the world that Jesus lived in. We're not all supposed to be carpenters. We're not all supposed to be healing people with leprosy. I don't know somebody who has leprosy. We're not supposed to be arguing with Pharisees. I don't know anybody who would self-proclaim them a Pharisee but we are supposed to do the things that Jesus did for the reasons that he did them. And so some of y'all might be old enough that you had the, what would Jesus do bracelet. I'm gonna add to that and say, what we need to be thinking about this is we need to know Jesus. We need to look to him well enough to ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do if he were you? What would Jesus do if he were in your situation, in your job, in your life? These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. And this happens through the simple concept that we call in Christianese quiet time that seems so simple. And it's like, oh, great. The youth pastor's telling us to have our quiet time. That checks out. Yes, I do talk to students about that a lot. But here's why that matters. You can't become like Jesus until you know what he looks like. You can't know what he looks like because he's not physically walking around on earth. So we have to look to scripture and we have to spend time with him to know what he looks like. And so here's three things. This is not a formula. I'm not saying, you know, you have to do it this specific way. I'm just telling you, you need to figure out how do I get myself to a place where every day I'm consistently setting aside time to enjoy being in the presence of God. And that's a process, like that's slow. There's gonna be seasons where a long time between it feeling like you actually wanna do it. Like I struggle with this, but I know that it's changing me. And so here's three things that I would just suggest should be part of this. Again, not a formula. First thing, scripture. That book reveals Jesus, reveals God to us. Everything we need is in there. It's weird, it's confusing. This is why we learn about it. Some of you feel the presence of God by learning things about the Bible. Shout out Enneagram fives. Like some of you feel close to God by learning things about the Bible. That's awesome. But all of us should have scripture involved somehow, whether that's one verse a day or this whole section, or it's like I do you know, verses every other day. In some way, shape, or form, scripture needs to be involved in this process, in this space that you make in your life. Second thing is prayer. You have to talk to God. A good way to set yourself up for this is realize you are going into the throne room of God. In, in ancient world, very few people had access to just walk into the throne room. And if you walked in without an invitation, you usually got killed. You and I, with unveiled faces, there is no separation between you and God. We, every time we pray, confidently walk into the throne room of God. And so maybe you need to literally visualize yourself doing that to set yourself up for prayer. For me, what changed it is praying out loud, straight up. And I'm a loud person, so I generally have to go somewhere where I know nobody's gonna hear me. So I'll go in my car and I'll be really loud. But praying out loud will change it for you because it's telling your flesh things that like consciously cannot get to the point that I'm interacting with somebody I can't see. It's telling yourself, no, we're talking to a real person. We're talking out loud because I'm gonna feel it. Sometimes it does things in us by talking out loud. Sometimes I'm here and I need a little shift in my spirit. So I'll get in my car and drive down to the empty baseball fields and go to the throne room. So if you drive by and see me screaming in my car, understand I'm in the throne room of God. (laughs) And we need those moments. need those moments. So scripture, prayer, and last one is presence. That is involved in the other two, but in a specific way, you need to find a way for yourself to feel that presence. So sometimes for me, it's getting again in my car and blasting worship music until I can't hear myself think. Sometimes it's preaching to yourself what you know is true, even though you don't feel it in that moment. Feelings matter, but they're not the end all be all. Like you have to preach to yourself. The psalmist says, praise the Lord, oh my soul. There's so many psalms that are like, you are going to do this because we know it's true. I don't feel it, but God is good. His mercies are new every morning, whatever it is. For some of us, like I was saying earlier, a little ADHD, my brain doesn't really stop moving. I have to practice the, the spiritual discipline of silence. So I'm talking like a long five minutes, a full five minute timer where you are silent. And by silent, I don't just mean not talking. I mean silent verbally and mentally. So like your brain starts going, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta take the kids to this. or Whatever it is, you have to stop yourself and have something that grounds you back in. Your brain is focusing on God's presence and his goodness. So for me, literally I'll sit there, my brain goes on a trail, Jesus Jesus. Whatever it is that sounds so simple and silly, and I don't know what it is for you. It might be one of those things I mentioned, but you have to find a way to make yourself realize you are in the presence of God. And when we start to do this, we are going to be transformed. You have to want this. I heard a story one time of a pastor in New York City who, when asked, you know, tell us about your prayer life, tell us about your walk with God, brought up the story that he realized he watched TV for three hours every day, and he surrendered those three hours to being in God's presence. Can we, I mean, I'm not against Netflix. I I self-admitted watched it yesterday a ton. Not a bad thing, but it's generally not the most helpful thing. So for some of us, what we need to do out of this is I said that and that really struck you. That was the Holy Spirit saying, you might need to do something like that. Because the truth is, we make space for what matters to us. So I'll talk to college students they are like, oh, I can't get up so early before class and blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe you need to go to bed an earlier, an hour earlier to make space on the front end of your day to spend time with Jesus. We have to make the space. We have to want this. I can't convince you to do this, but I can tell you, you have to want it. You have to bend your will to interact with the Holy Spirit. Number two, reflect the image of Christ. You cannot be formed in a vacuum. Life doesn't happen outside the context of relationships. Life happens in community you're gonna see this week where you still need to be sanctified by being around your family and where you've made progress in being sanctified by being around your family. Parents in the room, if you have college students, remember that they have grown from being teenagers. They might still do things like that when they get around you because that's a hard spot to be in, but they are being sanctified just like you are. Those formative moments, the places around people at work and different things like that, that is where other people are gonna see the light of Christ shining ever brighter through us. That's where you're gonna see in yourself, oh, I used to freak out like this in that moment, but now I did this. That's the Holy Spirit showing you, you are shining ever brighter. You are reflecting the image of Christ. I was talking to a college student who serves with youth and uh, she's she's an engineering, super smart, and, but she has a huge heart for Unreached People groups. Kind of like we talked about a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of this series. Like our call with the Great Commission is to bring the name of Jesus to people who do not yet know the name of Jesus. Like that is what the role of every believer, every disciple is to participate in that process somehow. But she has a heart that she might be called to go. And Miles mentioned, and this idea has been thrown around a lot. Maybe we as Americans need to get a degree in engineering or being a vet or being a doctor, and instead of getting a job here, go to a country that needs Jesus and do our job there. And so she's processing this idea, and she asked me, and we were just talking about, she's like, why would it be different? Because she had done a a co-op where she was in in an engineering job for like six months, and she was like, I really struggled talking about Jesus in that context. Why would it be different if I went to another country and was an engineer there? And I thought about that, and I felt like the Holy Spirit showed me the reason it would be different, and I said this to her, is that that thing, that job now becomes a means to an end. That job is no longer about making money or doing the job. And it's not just like, oh, let me invite people to church because that's a side thing. That now becomes the purpose by which she's in that country to share the name of Jesus. That thing becomes a means to an end of showing the image of Christ to people around her. And I think in our context, we talk about everybody's doing ministry, but I think if you don't work for a church, and even if you do work for a church, a lot of times those other purposes, those other ends sneak in a lot. Oh, I need to take care of my family. I wanna be significant. I wanna succeed at this. I wanna work as if I'm working for the Lord. All good things. But a lot of times, again, y'all, where we live, it's sneaky. It sneaks in and no longer does that become the purpose of what we're doing. Everything, what if we actually acted like everything in our life mattered? Like the way that you interacted with your kids is forming them into a disciple. One of the Proverbs says, children had in one's youth, it's like an arrow in the hands of a warrior. They are weapons that we are called to form. I don't care if you're like, I'm kind of old and raising kids. That's okay, that's okay. You are called to form that child into the image of Christ, into a weapon to be used by God. Every job that you do, people should see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Let your good works shine before others so that it may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So everything in our life matters, every circumstance. What if we treated it that way? This is the last thing in this point, y'all. Pain is part of the process. Hurtful things are sometimes the way that we are sanctified the most. The Holy Spirit doesn't cause sickness or death or hurt or when we make a mistake and hurt other people, but he's gonna use it. And so you have to press in in those moments and be so reminded that pain's part of it. And so transformed, that's where I'm gonna finish, just this cool concept. That word for transformed in that last verse is the word metamorpho, used in four places in the New Testament. I use Greek because again, shout out Enneagram five, sometimes these things help people understand the concept. So that word's used four times in the New Testament. Here, this passage that we just read, be transformed in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then in two other spots in the gospels, in the Mark account and the Matthew account of the transfiguration of Jesus. That's significant because in the transfiguration, Jesus went to a mountaintop, was again affirmed by God. We saw Elijah and Moses, a couple other things, and a few of his disciples, but they literally saw him transformed, transfigured, and got a piece of his glory. So I'm gonna read one of those verses. It's gonna be on the screen behind me in Matthew 17. There he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, his face, shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light that image this is significant because that image of jesus being in tr- transformed to his glory who he actually is is the process that you and i are stepping into you see what i'm saying you're already fully holy and fully set apart our bodies aren't our lives aren't there's still brokenness in us but this process is transforming us to the glory that's within us because of the holy spirit and we see this Y'all can put your notes away, but I'm gonna read just in, in verse, or excuse me, chapter four. It says, verse six, it says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. This all-surpassing power is the presence of the Holy Spirit that's transforming you. That's the treasure. It's not of you, it's of God. We are broken jars of clay, made of dust, and to dust we will return. Yet for some reason, this treasure has been entrusted to be inside of us. Why? So that it can shine through us. You listen to a ton of those stories from baptisms. They would say, I looked in the mirror and didn't like what I see. What happens when we're following Jesus is we start to look in the mirror and we see the light of God shining through those broken cracks in our life. So that might be sharing our brokenness with others. That's life and community, but it has to start with us looking into the face of Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And then it goes on in this passage, he says, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. We're in broken bodies, y'all, that get hurt. Inwardly we're being renewed day by day. We're shining ever brighter. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so Proverbs 4:18. what does it say? The path of the righteous is like the morning sun growing ever brighter to the full light of day. What's the full light of day? What do we fix our eyes on? What is unseen? What is eternal? Jesus coming back and us not having these troubles anymore. The things we face in our life, they are hard and I am not minimizing them and nor is Paul. But he is saying they are light and fleeting compared to the glory that we're gonna experience when Jesus comes back. There's a glory that we're inviting people into because when they see you, they need to see Jesus. So stand up with me, we're gonna pray and worship y'all. And as we walk and look at Jesus, we are being transformed into his image so that the world, the dark world has no light outside of Jesus. That light is entrusted to you and me. You're playing A, B, C through Z for God's presence and glory going to the world. Jesus isn't walking around in Auburn, Alabama, you and I are. So pray with me and worship and maybe ask the Holy Spirit, what are these things? What are these barriers that I'm enslaved through that you're freeing me from? And what are these things that I need to do to create the space to to walk with you and to act like every single part of my life matters? Lord, would you come and move and do what I cannot? Lord, do in me what I'm talking about, that we might see you catch a glimpse of your glory. Lord, we see in part and we know in part now, we see pieces of your glory like a part of a reflection in a mirror. But Lord, would that transform us? We're your sons. We're co-heirs with Christ. Christ, you're the firstborn of the resurrection. We are following in your footsteps. Would you do that work in us? Would you show us what it is that we're enslaved to? Would you show us the space that we need to make to encounter you? So much more powerful than just saying, oh, I did my quiet time, but we need to encounter you so that as we walk, Lord, people would see your light shining through us. Lord, would you move in this space, would you inhabit the worship and the praises of your people? In Jesus' name, amen.